So I'd like to begin um, with uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We're always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation. A salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. With all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Here, of course, we have another example, which is sprinkled liberally throughout both of uh, Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica. It just seems he can't help himself being thankful for their growth in love and faith and hope despite their trials. Uh, we remember in uh, his first letter in chapter one, as he introduces that, introduced that letter, uh, we're always thankful to God, Paul said, for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work and your loving deeds and the enduring hope you have because of your, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought to you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. And again, Paul takes measures here uh, in his second letter uh, to strengthen and encourage them for the sake of their faith so that no one would be shaken by these persecutions. Indeed, you yourselves know that this is what we are destined for. And that last statement, I pretty much adopted as a, as a theme statement, as it were, for both of Paul's letters to the church at uh, Thessalonica, uh, destined for suffering, destined for struggling for the kingdom. And uh, you'll find again today that that, uh, that that theme will be picked up on again as it's, uh, as it's relayed by the apostle. The second coming of Christ uh, parousia is the technical term for that, and, and I'm not much on, you know, using technical terms per se, except to say it's it's a lot easier to say parousia instead of saying the second coming of Christ all the time. And so the parousia, the second coming of Christ, is a major theme in both of Paul's letters to the church. Paul spends much time uh, in both letters and addressing misconceptions about what he had taught them regarding the Lord's return to reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. Given that Paul was only in Thessalonica for several weeks, one wonders why Paul apparently gave priority to teaching this fledgling church about the parousia. And that, that's an interesting point to dwell upon, I think, uh, and to seek to understand. Um, Paul, we know, was, was, was personally with the church uh, at Thessalonica. He established the church as, as a new church planting 
Um, and he was only able to be there for several weeks, it seems, before persecution uh, drove him out of town. Uh, the uh, the zealous Jews, uh, particularly zealous there and, um, uh, and, and jealous of Paul's success, drove him out of town. And so this created great uh, anxiety for Paul, as we know in our previous studies, particularly in his first letter. And... Um, so what this suggests timing-wise is that with all of this emphasis in his letters upon reminding them and straightening them out on what he taught about the uh, uh, the second coming of Christ, that, that this was a point of emphasis in his teaching. He considered in the, in, even in the very first few weeks of the establishment of the church that he needed to ground them in an understanding uh, for, their, for their hope that... Uh, uh, their understanding that Jesus was going to return. And so uh, the hope of the Lord's return, which includes, of course, themes like the resurrection and, and the judgment, uh, the promise of new heavens and new earth, they're essential to sustaining faithfulness in the face of persecution and trials. And so perhaps we don't focus so much on the end times because we're comfortable and safe in these present times. But the cultural winds are rapidly changing and we may well come to appreciate the hope we have in Christ's return as a reprieve from persecution. I don't hear it terribly often uh, among uh, among brethren, uh, but we may well be faced in the not too distant future where where we might, like the church of the first few centuries, who was constantly uh, marginalized and constantly uh, in danger uh, um, uh, because of their faith, uh, the the appeal to God, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, an appeal for the Lord to return to rescue his people who are labouring under the burden of their faithfulness in service to God. This, again, as I've emphasised in the, in the, uh, in the past, and, and um, I want to just sort of remind everybody again as we move forward, this is a major theme in the New Testament scriptures. Um, Peter, for example, I mean, we've been giving attention to Paul, particularly in his relationship with the church at Thessalonica, but Peter taught the same things. In First Peter chapter 1, he speaks of how the Old Testament prophets longed to understand the things that the Spirit of God was revealing about the Christ through them. And he describes their particular curiosity, their particular interest as relating to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And then later in that same letter, Peter goes on to talk to the Christians who were who were needing encouragement to to bear up, to stand up under under difficulties and persecution because of their faith. And he reminds them, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And you might recognize this diagram that I've developed to highlight this point. We've got incarnation where in the person of Jesus, God leaves all of the glory that was his in the heavenlies to come, uh, the Son of God, uh, come, humble himself, come as a servant uh, to obey God, even to the point of, of death on the cross. We're well familiar with that story. And then, of course, we understand Following the crucifixion of Jesus, his, his death, his burial, there was the resurrection. 
And after a period of some 40 days after demonstrating uh, with, with many infallible proofs, as, as Luke describes it, to the, to the disciples that, uh, uh, that he was indeed resurrected from the dead, he, he ascends to take up his place uh, and begin reigning at the right-hand side of the Father in the heavenlies. And we understand that we fit in time-wise along this dotted line where we continue here and now as uh, the extension, if you will, of the of the uh, God's purposes and activity carried out initially through Messiah, now through His Church, Messiah's Church. But notice the continuation of the line as we as we move upwards. We are we are growing, we are maturing in Christ likeness. We are becoming more and more godly. Ideally, that's God's purpose for us. But we're still a blue line. We're still engaged in that same line that the Christ entered into, the suffering. We're still in the suffering stage of life. And it's we have the promise of the parousia, the return of Jesus Christ, the promise of resurrection and judgment and new heavens and, and new earth. And so we look forward to moving forward, um, no longer suffering, but as entering into Glory, sharing in the glory that Jesus Christ currently enjoys. And so this idea, this theme of suffering before glory is fundamental to the experience of a Christian. And it's so important for us to hear this today and to be reminded of this day because it's for some reason, uh, and I guess it's understandable uh, culturally in the West in particular, the whole shift towards me, uh, individualism, consumerism, etc. Uh, this message of Christianity being a path of suffering and self-denial has pretty much been lost in many circles among many believers. And I just want to remind everybody this morning that, that that's not a biblical picture of the church. That's not a biblical understanding of our experience as, as Christians. As the Apostle Paul advised the church at Thessalonica, and our experience is no different, we can expect sufferings as a result of our service to God, as a result of our being um, uh, uh, the kingdom of God. And we have these things, faith, love and hope, that again Paul has emphasised time and time again in his Thessalonian correspondence. Faith in the Christ. We live by faith. We live through trust and obedience with a view to developing love in our lives that we might become expressions, uh, images, uh, reflections of the God of love whom we serve and who loves us through his son. And of course, the hope that we have beyond, uh, beyond not just in this life, but beyond this life. But we must accept that basic paradigm, the sufferings that precede the glories. We look forward to the glory that's promised to us by God, but we need to be willing to endure the sufferings beforehand in imitation of the Christ. To the text specifically, verses 13 and 14, as for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. And, and, and look at the richness of the description, the affection that, that, that Paul and appreciation that Paul packs into these few words as he, as he describes the church there at Thessalonica. We're always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation. 
a salvation that came through the spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. And now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to summarize here. These Thessalonian brothers and sisters believe the Holy Spirit's message. The Holy Spirit's message, of course, was delivered to the people through the Apostle Paul. They're saying yes to God, vindicated God's extraordinary and costly measures needed to offer everyone the invitation to be reconciled to him. That is, in a word, salvation. God went out on a limb in order to make it possible for humanity to be reconciled with him. Extraordinary and costly measures. And when the church at Thessalonica, those faithful few who, in spite of opposition and flat-out persecution, they said yes to God. And they continued to say yes to God. That's a precious thing, as Paul emphasises. And, and, and again, Paul is almost gushy about his appreciation for them for that very reason. And you know what? Paul would be no less enthusiastic about those of us today who have said yes to God through his son and who continue in spite of challenges, in spite of difficulties, in spite, even in some circumstances, in spite of persecution, continue to say yes to God. Precious, precious indeed. Those who say yes to the Father through the Son join the ranks of the chosen and beloved. And of course the chosen and beloved one is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when we align ourselves with Christ, when we join Christ in baptism, when we join Christ in being initiated into him and into his body, in becoming part of Christ, we become God's chosen and beloved. Those who say yes to the Father through the Son experience salvation as they are made holy by the Spirit and be live the truth. And I like that. That's old English there, be live, from which we get our term believe, our English word believe. But be live kind of captures the, the sense because when we too, too often when we, when we use the word believe, we're talking or limiting it to sort of like what happens up here, our intellectual assent. Oh yes, I believe that. But be live conveys much more the biblical sense of faith. It is, yes, intellectual, but intellect that translates into our hearts and onto our wills, our behaviour. It determines how we live. Interestingly, in light of uh, previous studies we've had in recent months, uh, you'll notice the synergy there and and the complementary nature of uh, 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 the cooperative uh, effort, if you will, between the Spirit of God and, 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 and the believer. We're made holy by the Spirit, sanctified by the Spirit. But we are called upon, our part in the process is to be, live the truth. 
God calls us to salvation through the message of the gospel. The good news that we can share in the glory of Jesus Christ now in being conformed to the image of Christ and into eternity reigning with Christ. The glory that he's promised that we will share with him. An interesting definition, if you will. It's easy to miss, but but when he talks about uh, God calling them, us, to salvation, when we heard the good news, that's the gospel. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news from God. God has gone to extraordinary and costly lengths in sending his son, even to suffer and die for us. The good news, well, because of that, we can now share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, of course, we know that in sharing in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Verse 15, with all these things in mind, so based upon everything that he's said beforehand, at least in this section, and in a moment we'll go back and reflect on the beginning of uh, uh, chapter 2 and, and make the connection, but with all of these things in mind, all of these, all of these good things that God has, has done, uh, all of the good things that's happening among, uh, among the brethren there in terms of their spiritual growth, stand firm. And keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter, says Paul. Now, let's have a look at the beginning of the chapter and sort of get the connection here. Uh, He began this section in straightening them out about some misconceptions about the second coming of Christ, the resurrection, etc. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. And of course, he goes on to demonstrate that that can't possibly be the case. Uh, the one destined for destruction needs to come before that can happen. But I want you to notice what I've highlighted there in, in yellow text and, and underlined there. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us. The clear implication there is that some people were claiming either to be receiving messages from the Spirit of God or claiming that they'd heard this from one of the apostles or were even um, counterfeiting a letter and presenting it or misrepresenting it as if it's from authority from the uh, the apostles. And what's interesting is that people that were trying to persuade the church in the first century of the truth of their claims, and as Paul points out, their claims are quite wrong. They were trying to present it as apostolic, as if it was from Paul. And you might, you might wonder what that's about. What it's about is a reflection of the essential nature of the apostolic teaching and apostolic authority to the church in the first century. And so he goes on in this connection. This is where verse 15 fits in. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in your election. Stand firm in your faith and your love and your hope. 
hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, the apostles, either by word of mouth or by letter. Hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. And of course, they're the two modes that, that the apostles used in the first century for communicating the gospel. Initially, directly, verbally, in standing up to a crowd and preaching directly to them. But in time, they began to write these things down. The apostle Peter describes his intention in writing Second uh, 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 Peter because he's wanting them to have preserved the truths that he's been teaching them about. He, he said he's not teaching you anything you haven't already heard. You're not teaching anything new, but I'm putting it in writing so that this same truth will endure so that the next generation and the next generation and the next generation will have that same truth. And I want to emphasize this point. Distinctiveness and the exclusiveness. You had, you had the apostolic teaching and then you had everything else or anything else. The pretenders. Paul says, don't you be swayed by spirit or by word or by letter as though it's from us. Don't be satisfied with anything other than the real thing the legitimate teaching of the apostles, not what somebody presents as the teaching of the apostles, as if it came from them. You stick with the real deal. Hold fast to the traditions that were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So we've got the distinctiveness and the exclusiveness of the apostolic tradition, which which relates to the faith and practice that was revealed through the apostles in the first century. It's the essence of pre-denominational or first century Christianity. The claim of Jude writing uh, in the first century, where he says, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Through the apostles. In the first century, the Christian faith was once for all delivered. One time, for all people, for all time. This is the basis of New Testament Christianity, as opposed to any subsequent teachings and practices. A little way of diagramming this, what I've described as a a chain of authority. And I think you'll recognise that this pattern, I would hope that this is very familiar to you. Uh, if not, I'd invite you to pay close attention because it's, it's so vitally important, even though it's so obviously simple. We recognise from a Christian point of view, when we talk about authority, ultimately we're talking about God, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And in terms of God's work in redemption, the Father sends forth the Son. And then the Son returns to the Father and then the Spirit is sent forth. We understand that, 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 that chain of events, as it were. The Son, in the incarnation, equipped and commissioned the apostles. The Holy Spirit was sent to them as promised by Jesus 
empowering them and guiding them. Among other things, Jesus promised them that the Spirit would come to remind them of all the things that he had taught them and further to teach, to guide them into all truth. Connect this with the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came and told his disciples, his apostles specifically, if you look at the context, it was the, it was the 12 minus Judas who had, uh, uh, who had left the company. Jesus came and told his apostles, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So here we have the apostolic eyewitness testimony, and that is the 12. Remember, Judas was was replaced, uh, and then we have the addition of Paul as as an exceptional case. Paul specifically chosen by God as the apostle to the Gentiles. And here we, and all of them, having having been privileged with being eyewitnesses of of the resurrected Christ. That was your criteria. That's why you can't have an apostle of Christ today because there are no eyewitnesses left of Jesus. The charisma, the gospel heralded Jesus' life and death and resurrection and lordship. And, of course, the call for obedience to the gospel, faith, repentance and baptism, the call to faithful discipleship. But then the commission continues, teach these new disciples and make disciples, baptize them into Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here we have apostolic traditions, the didache, the the, the gospel interpreted and applied, the teaching and practice of the church revealed through the apostles. So the connection the apostolic teaching and teaching were initially communicated orally, then committed to inspired scripture. The faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints in the first century AD is the same faith we have recorded and preserved in the New Testament scriptures today. So when Paul talks to the church at Thessalonica in the first century, And he instructs them to give attention to those things that had been revealed through the apostles, whether by word, face to face, or in writing, what we would call scripture. Pay heed to the apostles and their teaching. Not to any pretenders. Not to anybody who might claim that they they have a word from the apostles or a word from God. You just settle on what God has revealed through his son, through his spirit, through his apostles. And now in concrete, objective terms, what we have today in the record of their teaching. Uh, I wish I could move this. I want to quickly illustrate these four pillars of spiritual authority which uh, influence interpretation. Uh, 
scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And you may remember about three years ago now, we sort of, we already sort of covered this territory. This is, this is by way of reminder. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. They're, they're basically the four areas, um, that influence our interpretation of scripture. So I want to anticipate that almost everybody's going to come back and say, well, we, 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 we accept the Bible as authoritative. We, we, we sort of, um, uh, what we teach is, 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 is what the Bible teaches, etc. And I want to explain what's going on there, um, and, and why different people that make that same claim, uh, come up with very different conclusions. When we talk about scripture as authority, we're talking about apostolic authority, which is derived from the apostles' witness, their traditions and interpretations of the Christ event preserved in the inspired scriptures. Now, this form of authority is going to tend to be contra-evolution, that is against evolution. That is against the idea that, that the teaching and practices evolved from what and when the apostles taught and, and practiced. It's a sense that it's going to work against the impulse that says, yeah, well, that's what they did in those days, but we do, we know better today. We do differently today, but that's, but that's okay. That's what I mean by that evolutionary process, that, that growing and changing. Um, apostolic authority resists that impulse. And as a result of that, it tends to be countercultural because culture moves on. Uh, we can think of any number of issues. Uh, uh, um, think, for example, classically in, in, in recent decades, how, how radical a shift there's been in our lifetime uh, about uh, certain um, uh, moral issues in our society. When, when certain sexual practices were regarded as being illegal and at the very least immoral, um, today not only legalized but celebrated and, and encouraged all within the space of about 40 years. Extraordinary. But that's just an example of the, the, the evolving nature of, of human culture. But a commitment to apostolic authority as it was revealed in the first century and preserved in scripture is going to, gen- to generally be or appear to be counter-cultural because it's not engaging in that same game of change. And the big challenge here is, is hermeneutics, and, and we would need to be uh, up front in recognising that, that hermeneutics, how we, how we interpret scripture, uh, can lead to some significant difficulties and, and challenges in our commitment to uh, uh, uphold scripture, apostolic authority, as the chief authority in, um, in our religious faith. And so the statement here would be uh, reminiscent of Jesus in addressing those who claim to be experts in the law. He would constantly bring them back. Have you not read? Are you not considering what the scripture, what in Jesus' context, what Moses said? Tradition, ecclesiastical authority, ecclesiastical, the church, church authority, um, derived from the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit and its bishops as the custodians and sole interpreters of truth. The net outcome of this tends to be uh, a tribalism or, or a sectarian loyalty. I'm a part of this group because we can rattle the chain all the way back to the apostles kind of thing. Apostolic succession is, is, a, is a classic expression of this as this um, 
characteristic of, of some uh, uh, Christian denominations, notably the Orthodox Church, uh, uh, the um, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and and to uh, perhaps a uh, well the the High Church of England, if you will, um, all claiming that their bishops provide a link back to the uh, to the original um, apostles. The net outcome of that, though, is that um, the church becomes the authority. Reason. Human authority derived from objective human ingenuity and current science, uh, vulnerable though to modern rationalism and cultural conformity. And I would say that pride is the big danger, the big challenge from that perspective. And then experience, again, human authority, this time derived from subjective human experience and will, where the church becomes vulnerable to recreating God and religion in one's own image. It's what, about what I want, uh, appealing to that consumerist uh, impulse again. And so this might be expressed in forms of mysticism, for example, um, or more, I think, applicable in, in our contemporary Western culture, pragmatism, whatever works. Uh, we use marketing devices, etc., to, to get the people in, to to to, uh, to attract the people, uh, to seem relevant to the people, etc., etc. Now, all four of these areas are necessarily involved in our interpretation of Scripture. The difference is to what degree do we give priority to one over the other? You see, you'll find plenty of people who, uh, plenty of believers who claim, oh, we, 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 we follow scripture. But if their commitment ultimately is to human reason, what you'll find is they'll begin to rationalise scripture to fit in with their human reason. Or tradition, if that's to be priority in, in our, in our authority, then, then we're going to again claim, uh, trump what seems to be taught in the scriptures with, but, but the bishops say this. The church says this. This is what we've always done. When usually that's not the case. It's usually changed over a period of time, but often the change is quite slow and, and in that sense almost unnoticeable. Or human authority in the form of experience. Yeah, the scripture says that, but I, I feel, I feel this way. And so, we seek to understand that it is what's primary that makes the difference. Is scripture primary? In which case, tradition, reason and experience will be filtered through scripture. It's not to deny the value and even the necessity of tradition and reason and experience, but it's to say that these things are subjected to, are brought under, are filtered through Scripture as the primary factor. Or in the case of tradition, where Scripture, reason and experience are filtered through tradition. Reason, where Scripture, tradition and experience are made subject to human reason. Or finally, Scripture, tradition and reason being filtered through experience the difference is which one trumps the rest and where does the buck stop all four of those categories would be quite forthcoming in saying we believe in the scriptures we follow the scriptures and I want to say this 
when you hear that consistently from different believers and different churches that actually teach and practice very different things, radically different things in some cases. As an outsider, and I used to struggle with this before I became a Christian, my observation of denominationalism was, well, it's just a bit of a joke, really, isn't it? So I'm not going to pay any attention to it. Because at the end of the day, if you're right and you're right, then it's either illogical or it doesn't matter. Well, I want to say to you, I think my understanding is a bit more accurate now and a bit more sophisticated. It's one thing to claim something. As apparently in the first century, remember, some were claiming either the spirit or a word from the apostles, etc., uh, to, to, to substantiate their teaching. The Lord's already come, apparently. Now, Paul's remedy is you come back and you settle you settle with what the apostles have revealed. And as we understand that that, that that flow of events, what the apostles revealed by God's providence has been preserved for us in Scripture today. So if we're to hear Paul and obey Paul in that sense, we're going to give serious attention. We're going to give serious priority to the Scriptures. Just a couple of examples before we finish, because I really think this is necessary for us to understand. This is the reason why you've got so many denominations teaching so many different things and so many uh, different practices. In many cases, there's a lot of common denominator there. But in many cases, there's a great deal of variation as well. Don't conclude that it doesn't matter. Because according to Paul, in writing to the church at Thessalonica, it does matter. It matters that what's taught and what is practiced is apostolic. It's quite, I've used this again several years ago and, and uh, in a different context, but this serves so wonderfully to highlight what I'm trying to demonstrate. F.F. Bruce, um, one of, and I'm going to use two examples from two of the prominent evangelical scholars of last century because of their authority in evangelical circles and also because they are so uh, representative of um, of the kind of thinking that I'm trying to demonstrate and, and highlight for everybody this morning. This is F.F. Bruce's commentary on Romans chapter 6 from the Tyndale New Testament commentaries, uh, prominent uh, evangelical reformed uh, commentary series. Speaking about what Paul says in Romans 6 about baptism. From this and other references to baptism in Paul's writings, it is certain he did not regard baptism as an optional extra in the Christian life and that he would not have contemplated the phenomenon of an unbaptized believer. We may agree or disagree with Paul but we must do him the justice of letting him hold and teach his own beliefs and not distort his beliefs into conformity with what we should prefer him to have said. This applies to many other subjects than Paul's baptismal doctrine. Now, I've made that bold to give emphasis to that statement. And again, um, Helen in the past has pointed out to me, and, and, and it was a good point that she made, you know, she's not sure that that F.F. Bruce is, is saying that this reflects his attitude. Um, I don't know. But certainly F.F. Bruce is, is, is making a comment about his reading audience 
uh, and the general recognition that, in, at least in many cases, this is uh, the sense that, that we, for some reason, believers think that they can disagree with Paul by teaching something different to his. And because we, we don't say it that way, we, we try and rationalise and twist it to fit our thing. But at the bottom line, what we're talking about, as F.F. F. Bruce clearly expresses here, is that, 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 that we should not distort his beliefs into conformity what we should prefer him to have said. This from a scholar, an evangelical scholar, who would be the first to put up his hand to say, yes, we, we, we respect the authority of scripture. We follow the Bible. This one, George Eldon Ladd, um, uh, last century, again, prominent uh, theologian, uh, former uh, professor at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary in California. Um, and he had this to say, in a theology of the New Testament, which was a standard text used in, in probably most uh, relatively conservative or evangelical uh, theological seminaries and Bible colleges last century. There was no normative pattern of church government in the apostolic age and the organisational structure of the church is not an essential element in the theology of the church. If Bruce talked about warning against the tendency that he saw among believers in misrepresenting Paul to change his teaching. We don't agree with that, so we're going to rationalise and tweak it. This one's a little bit different. Um, Lad says there is no such pattern. There is no such, there's nothing to look for here. And, and, of course, if you're not looking for something, guess what? You're not going to find it. But I just want to contrast Lad's comment with that of the Apostle Paul. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writing to Timothy, giving Timothy, who was at Ephesus, instructions about how to sort out church government, <laughs> how to arrange the organisational structure of the church. And here it is. This is a faithful saying, said Paul. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Likewise, deacon, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It would seem to me quite clear that the Apostle Paul understood himself to be instructing Timothy precisely how to organise the church government in the local church. Perhaps what Ladd means is there's no super congregational government, no denominational structure. And I would say amen to that. No such thing exists. But that isn't licensed to go ahead and create something. It's rather a cautionary word to stick with the church as the apostles revealed it, established it in its teaching and its practices. We conclude Paul's message to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Be humble and you're being humble. Be biblical. Be faithful and you'll be blessed.
his concluding words. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Be a people of love. Be a people of faith. Be a people of hope. And God will bless us.